This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Michael Zarinski, and he's the founder and managing partner of MZ Capital Partners. He specializes in ground-up construction. We're going to dive back into a topic today around ground-up construction that you need to know about. I mean, if you're considering building any kind of residential property, you need to know about amenities, right? What's going to work? What's not going to work? And why? Michael's going to dive into that today and how they see that and how some amenities have helped them to lease up projects very fast. Michael, welcome back. You've provided so much information in helping us, myself and the listener, and just thinking through getting started in the development space and things we need to know. No doubt we're better prepared now just after the last two segments that you've helped us with. Uh, but we want to jump into a few other details. And I know that you know amenities play such a large piece in maybe the community or the type of project or who your tenants are going to be, right? And so let's jump into some of those things and, and maybe what's, you know, most in demand for today that you're seeing or, you know, how you even determine that. Yes, thank you. I think today's renter is looking for a high-end communal experience. They look at the apartment as more than just a place to sleep. They look at it as somewhere to live and to work and to play. And more and more, especially today in the remote work or a hybrid work environment, which seems to be taking a permanent place, people spend a lot of time in the apartment community they're in, and they make the selection of that community to fit those needs. We build communities largely in suburban areas around metropolitan areas, and we like to build communities that have standalone uh, clubhouses that house our management and leasing office and also our maintenance staff, but also within those spaces, common areas that people want to use. We like, because of today's environment, we add amenities of work-from-home private suites that are usable and reservable, and a door could be closed, um, a glass door, and someone can have a live Zoom call, for example, within those rooms. And then also within those clubhouses, areas for collaboration on work, co-working areas where people could work together during the day. We provide in those areas the highest possible speed internet, one gig minimum fiber optic as a fast internet connection it makes all the difference in the world. Everybody uses them and we provide that free of charge in our common areas to our residents. And then of course we have the play areas as well. We have pool tables. We have places for gaming where residents could meet each other and collaborate. One of the most successful um, well, play areas and gathering places that we've developed as a trademark is a, a large on-the-wall Scrabble board with magnetic pieces. And we find residents like to play Scrabble and sit, you know, especially in the evenings, maybe over a beer and have a Scrabble game and meet, that, meet their uh, fellow residents. 
Although we provide in the apartments very high-end deluxe kitchens, we also provide in our clubhouse a demonstration kitchen that residents can use and rent out for private parties or events of themselves. And we also have resident events on a monthly basis in that gathering space. People like those. And also in today's environment, outdoor spaces, fire pits in the evening, hammocks in the right community for kind of relaxing and chilling out outside or fire pit to make s'mores and, you know, on a Friday night and hang out with fellow residents, uh, very attractive. And in the right community and in the right market, we also do outdoor resort style swimming pools that have gazebos and cabanas and fitness center on the interior of the clubhouse of the quality of a club level fitness center with interactive exercise availability such as Peloton where we pay for the subscription or the mirror because we find that that's an amenity that allows our residents to give up outside gym memberships and do their physical fitness on site included in their rent is no extra charge and we make those areas those common areas that I discuss accessible to residents 24-7 because in today's world, people have different schedules and they either work out or work at all hours and those areas never close. The other amenity that's um, become a given is a very large area that's controlled with locked boxes and that's for an Amazon drop-off where the Amazon driver could actually put something in an area, put it in a numbered box, and send a text message to a resident that their Amazon delivery is in box number 17 with a code for them to open it and retrieve their box. Those are some of the amenities outside of the units that are in demand today and give us the wow factor when somebody tours a property and what makes them want to sign a lease. Love that. I love how you even think about like the wow factor. What is going to do that? And what are people looking for? You know, you talked about uh, numerous things. I've never heard of the large magnetic Scrabble board, by the way. It's one of the most popular ones. That's interesting. May mention that to our team as well. That's neat. But, you know, you talked about something that we know, but we don't talk about very often, even like the club level fitness center and how that allows tenants to say, give up a club membership somewhere else. You know, you're creating this space that they're paying for somewhere else. And so I think immediately as, you know, if I was renting still, if that is important to me, I can immediately, you know, justify maybe even paying a little more for rent, right? Because I can see, oh, well, I have this right here. There's no need for me to pay that $100 membership or whatever it may be per month. Right. So you have a combination of, you know, there's, you know, the calculations like 100 for that. There are some residents more and more are 1099 workers where they're entrepreneurs or working on their own. And many of them uh, will rent a WeWork or other office share space on a monthly basis. They can eliminate that and use our on-site clubhouse. It's another monthly expense they can eliminate and makes a huge difference in the overall calculus of what someone can afford in monthly rent. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's incredible. And you know, I was thinking too about uh, the Amazon drop boxes have been an issue I know for years now, right? You know, as Amazon has taken yeah. off and that's been so important. Yeah, so important. But what about, you know, how does this help you to lease up faster or does it, or, you know, is this focus on say class A projects, high, very high end projects every time? Is that kind of your focus, your niche, or may there be projects where it's like, you know what, this, you know, we may not be able to justify these amenities at this project, you know, how do you all think through that? And then just, you know, how does that affect leasing? Yeah, we do focus on uh, high end projects. We are, however, in certain markets, able to adjust our rent levels by the unit sizes themselves. As an example, there are certain markets where we've developed a very successful project where there's a lot of millennial singles, I would say people living on their own, who want to live in a certain area where rents are very, very high, who want to live alone, they can't afford a traditional apartment or don't want a roommate. And we've provided a studio or a one-bedroom convertible apartment in a very high-end environment with the amenities that I've discussed. That's just a little bit smaller in square footage than the typical unit at an all-in rent that's a few hundred dollars below than the market rate for a one-bedroom convertible or a studio. Some in the industry call them micro units, but they're really not that tiny. A studio of, let's say, 600 square feet, still a decent size, and uh, or a one-bedroom convertible that's, say, 700 square feet. And because of the smaller unit size, we are able to deliver a product that, for an all-in rental price, is a lower price level even though the rent per square foot is relatively high, which gives us a yield on it that justifies the new construction costs. Let's dive into what do you all consider? What are you all, things you all are looking at or considering when picking those markets that you are going to be willing to risk those chasing costs, right? You know, or two years of time before you can even start on a project. And I mean, that's obviously something you all have dialed in. What does that look like? Right. Well, For us, the key first starting point is economics 101 of supply and demand. We look for markets where the demand for rental housing seems to be exceeding the available supply. And kind of the benchmark to look at is we do our research on occupancy rates and a 5% vacancy rate is kind of the norm of a market that's in balance. And where we see a vacancy rate, as is the case in many markets today, that's below that number, sometimes as low as 3% or even in the one point something percent range, we know that there's not enough product in that market that people are staying poorer than they need to stay in existing apartment communities, which tells us there's demand there. Second step we'll take once we identify those markets that appear to be supply constrained is we check out the rent levels and we look for areas that have growing 
history of rent growth over the last couple of years and kind of project from there that rent will continue to grow where it's supply constrained and rent's been growing. And then we apply the existing rent level to a model we've developed internally to see if we can efficiently build and we kind of have a feel for what it takes to uh, be able to build in today's environment and rent level you need. From there, within the site selection and the sub-market review, we look at the amenities in and around the site, such as transportation, the number of jobs that are being created, if there's sufficient number of jobs uh, to support an employment base, if employment's been growing. And we also look at uh, transportation, either the roads or public transportation, see how those things are. And also for a good retail infrastructure, certainly a nearby grocery store, crucial. And then from their entertainment districts, such as quality restaurants or nightlife or other quality entertainment and retailers coming to the area that have done their own due diligence, which kind of is a proxy for us to know, for example, a Walgreens or a CVS location or a major bank location tells us that someone that does a lot of good demographic research has decided to go into that area. That's always a good sign for entrepreneurial companies like us to kind of attach ourselves to their uh, tailwind that they created by their presence. That's how we kind of narrow in the area and we identify the area. And then from there, we try and find a site for development. Yeah, and many great things there. I was just making a list of notes. You know, you mentioned, you know, even like, Researching the occupancy is one of the first things. And, you know, 5% is the typical normal, I think you said market rate. And then, you know, 3% or maybe even down to one point something, you know, is lower than normal. And that tells you, hey, we, you know, there's a de- demand here, right? I wonder, where do you find that? Or where do you suggest a listener find that as well? At data today, which is great, which makes the business um, much easier to operate, especially in markets that some, you know, are not in your hometown is available from sources uh, such as industry sources, such as CoStar. Axio is another one of them. Yarding Matrix is another one that provides it and that data is available. Those are subscription services, but for someone just starting out or looking at an area, the brokerage firms that are active in commercial brokerage or in multifamily development brokerage, they have access to that data and will make it uh, readily available to a prospective client looking to purchase in a community where they're active. I would imagine a number of those things the broker should be able to help with some, right? And of course, we want to confirm those assumptions, right? You know, and think through what about, you know, when you go and visit and when you're maybe you're going into a newer market, what does that look like as far as the time spent there looking at this market? Maybe some things that you're doing personally or, or your team you know, when you're looking at a new project, potentially in a new market? Yeah, I like to spend a lot of time in the area, at least a day and overnight, check out the potential site. I like to get out of the car and walk the area and, you know, kind of get a feel for what's going on there. I like to check it during the day and at night to 
kind of get the vibe of the neighborhood and the feel for the area. Check out what retailers pretty quickly. I have kind of little shortcuts on my checklist to drive through an area. And when I see uh, Starbucks, if I see uh, in Aldi and uh, a Whole Foods, for example, and a Starbucks and a Walgreens, you know, I basically, I go through the motions and my due diligence, but I'm pretty much done. I know it's a winner. <laughs> Helps to be there and experience it, right? Yeah. 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 No doubt about it. There's really no substitute for that. Also, there's nothing like, although you can do it online through, you know, sources like apartments.com and, and actually poke around on neighboring existing apartment communities and getting their rates and looking at some photos. But we actually go with our team and we physically tour other properties in the area, get a tour of the common area amenities and the apartments themselves, see what kind of amenities and finishes they are, and see what, you know, really looks like and what they're offering uh, and at what rental rate. All right, Michael. Well, that's incredible. I just think it's a great list there. I know the listener can just go back and listen to the last 10 minutes as well and know many things they need to look at as they look at a, a market or submarket and think about, hey, should we try to develop something in this market. So I want to jump to a few other questions though. And Michael, I wonder, you know, if you could go back and talk to yourself when you were starting in real estate, you know, what would you tell yourself? You know, what would you say, hey, you need to know this, you know, right now, please do this. Or what would a couple of those things be? Well, I think everybody who's been in real estate for a while would say they wish they would have bought more or they wish they weren't a hesitated I wish they wouldn't have analyzed and should have just bought that deal because, you know, it's easy to look back. It's kind of like uh, the movie Back to the Future when you know what's going to happen. It's easy, but when we all look back and we see what's happened to particularly multifamily, the appreciation and the value of pretty much anything you would have bought 20 years ago, you know, should have bought more. But I think what would have been, what I, you know, what I wish I would have known the the contrary of that argument is I wish I would have known some of the due diligence and some of the investigative techniques that I've outlined through these series of interviews years ago. Uh, a lot of it is learned from mistakes and trial and error. And, you know, I maybe would have made decisions a little differently or postured to deal differently. But I've also found that sometimes the best way to learn and evolve in this business is to make mistakes and mess up and recognize those mistakes and just not repeat them. Yeah, no doubt about it. We can learn a lot uh, if we just don't repeat mistakes, right? What about, yeah. what predictions do you have or how do you feel about just the real estate market in general over the next, say, six to 12 months? You know, and has anything changed about how you all are looking at projects? You know, because obviously you're thinking about that, that chase costs or, you know, 12, 24 months, maybe potentially before you can break ground on something. You know, has any of that changed or the market changed how you all are looking at projects moving forward from today? Yeah, I am uh, extremely bullish on the future, at least uh, with our, within our end of real estate, which is exclusively multifamily. The future is very bright. It's hard to find dark clouds. Inflation, which is affecting all kinds of things in our economy, has actually proven to be a good thing for multifamily. Rents increase, 
mortgages become less affordable, which means less people buy houses, which means they got to rent. It's a space that can't be affected by virtual or online shopping. You can't live on the internet. You got to live in an actual physical space. And a number of renters demographically is growing each year and projections are they will continue to grow by a significant amount. And we have over the course as a country, over the course of the last 10 to 20 years, substantially underbuilt for the future demand. The National Multifamily Housing Council and the National Apartment Association recently came out with a projection that we need an additional 4.3 million units by 2035 to house the number of people that are going to be looking for rental housing. So if you can get a project built and you can bring it to the market, you're going to stay full and you're going to continue to see rent grow. On that same line of thought there, when you're looking at a project like that, and you answered a lot of this, but I still love asking, you know, just how you think through being prepared for a downturn, you know, or, you know, what are you thinking through when you're underwriting that new project? Any other details around that that we haven't talked about that you'd like to mention? We underwrite higher than typical vacancy, even though in actuality, I know it's going to be probably one or two percent. We underwrite five percent. In the early years, we underwrite as much as 25% vacancy. We escalate our expenses from year to year when we do our underwriting. And we very conservatively estimate rent increases. Rent increases the last two years have been double digits. We don't think that's maintainable. But it does appear by most industry experts and economists that rent increases should be in the five to six percent range for the foreseeable future. We underwrite three percent just to be conservative. We underwrite higher real estate taxes than we think we're going to encounter. And we underwrite substantially higher payroll costs than our actual experience has been in the industry. And we also underwrite an eventual exit cap rate at a much higher uh, cap rate than today's market is, assuming that there might be a change in the cap rate, even though my gut tells me I don't see a change in much. There's too many dollars chasing multifamily deals. What's your best source for meeting new investors right now or for onboarding new investors? Best source for us is referrals from existing investors who because of our track record and the performance we've been able to show, brag to their friends about what a great return it is. And probably the best commercial we have for investing in real estate today is when people look at the stock market and they see what's happened to their portfolio. <laughs> it's a great time to be raising money. And selling the idea of uh, buying a, an asset that is a hedge against inflation. What's the most important metrics that you track? It could be personally, professionally. It could be exercising to how many deals you underwrite. I guess what I track on the business side is our equity multiple return. And you know, we, we go through all the underwriting matrices, but I try and make sure that any 
deal we do, which we're very patient on, will produce at the investor level a two times uh, equity multiple over, say, a five-year-old. Nice. What about some habits that are daily habits that you're disciplined about that have helped you achieve success or produce the highest level return for you? Patience and growing with the ability, both maturity-wise and financial level, that there's no pressure to have to do a deal, that if a deal doesn't work out, it's fine, that it's not important to do a deal to generate deal fees to cover overhead and to feed the piper and to be able to, even though we care, to be able to not care enough about a particular deal happening unless it makes a lot of sense. I think developing that discipline is hard and it comes with maturity and also, frankly, just with the financial ability not to be forced to have to do something. What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? I think the number one thing, although people take a lot of credit for being really smart, and figuring things out and doing all kinds of the due diligence that we described, if we're all honest with ourselves, number one thing is luck. I'm in the right place at the right time. I have a lot of really smart friends that are in the office sector or the hotel business or you know someone that owns a shopping mall. They really know their stuff. They're very smart. They're in a lot of trouble right now, and they spend their day talking to their lenders about not foreclosing. Multifamily, the stars align, and luck is what made it happen. How do you like to give back? I like to give back a lot. It's really something we do uh, in our company a lot. We have a saying that we like to do good while, while doing well. One of the things that has become our trademark that we do is in any community where we have a multifamily investment or a development, is we get in touch with the local food pantry and we give them a contribution that is equal to the amount of money it takes to feed a family of four for a year in their community. And I'm proud that we've done that now for five years in a row. Nice. Well, Michael, grateful for how you've given back to us as well over the last few segments, our number of segments now, and just going into development. You've committed a lot of time to us and I'm great, very grateful for that. I know the listeners have learned a lot. I have learned a lot. Can you tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you and your company? Sure. Best way is uh, our website is www.mzcapitalpartners.com or they can contact me directly uh, via email is always good. M-H-Z at mzcapitalpartners.com. Happy to share thoughts or conversations with everyone. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope you have liked and subscribed to the show. Please tell your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show. And I hope that you are learning and growing. Don't forget to go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can start investing today.